Welcome to The Real News Network. I'm Paul Jay. September 11th is the 15th anniversary of the attacks on the World Trade Towers in New York. Of course, there are many unanswered questions about those attacks. There are a few questions that are perhaps more pointed now. A few years ago, I interviewed Senator Bob Graham, who was the chair of the Congressional Joint Committee looking into the 9-11 attacks. And we discussed much of the issues of the role of the Saudi government. At the time, I asked him, if the Saudi government is involved, wouldn't that mean that Prince Bandar, the Saudi ambassador to the United States, would have to have been involved? At the time, Senator Graham said that he was not allowed to speak about that because the 28 pages, uh, he didn't say all of this, but we knew this was the case, that Bandar was mentioned in those 28 pages. And if he were to talk about Bandar's role, he'd be revealing what was in the 28 pages, and they had been kept secret. Well, now the 28 pages have been released. So now we're going to pick up where the last interview left off and pursue the issue of just what was the role of the Saudi government and particularly what was the role of Prince Bandar, the US Saudi ambassador to the United States, and should I say, extremely close friend of President Bush and the Bush family. So now joining us is Senator Bob Graham. Bob Graham was the governor of Florida from 1979 to 1987. United States Senator from Florida from 1987 to 2005, Chairman of the Senate Select Committee on Intelligence, Co-Chair of the Bipartisan Joint Congressional Inquiry into Intelligence Failures Surrounding the 9-11 Attacks. He's the author of the book Intelligence Matters, the CIA, the FBI, Saudi Arabia, and the Failure of America's War on Terror, and also the author of the book The Keys to the Kingdom. Thanks very much for joining us, Bob. Good, Paul. Thank you very much. So, so let's pick up where we left off. At the time, I said what I just said. Bandar had to have known. He had to have been involved. And in fact, when the 28 pages were released just a few weeks ago, uh, he is very much at the, at the center of those, uh, what had been hidden, redacted pages from your report. Uh, so in, in this interview, I want to go through the uh, report in some detail. But just first of all, overall, what do you come away with as the role of Bandar in either financing or facilitating the 9-11 attacks? Paul, let me first say thank you for this opportunity to, to continue our previous conversation. Also, to put this in context, the 28 pages were written in the fall of 2002. A lot of things have happened since 2002, and we have better perspective and insights. The second is that the 28 pages were largely written based on information gathered about three of the hijackers who lived in Los Angeles and San Diego. Uh, there was not much information available in the fall of 2002 relative to the other 16 hijackers who lived primarily east of the Mississippi in states like Florida, Virginia, New Jersey. Uh, we now know more about those other uh, hijackers. Now, coming back to the question of Bandar, uh, we, uh, we, the 28 pages uh, discuss the fact that one of Osama bin Laden's closest associates, a man named Abu Zukari, uh, was uh, captured uh, in Pakistan shortly after 9-11. And uh, among his effects was a notebook uh, of telephone numbers 
uh, two of those numbers relating to Prince Bandar. Uh, one of them was to his mansion second home in Aspen, Colorado, and the other was to his bodyguard in Washington, D.C. Uh, that's all we know about those numbers. Uh, the second is that uh, Bandar was uh, alleged to have provided funding for an intermediary uh, who was close to one of the persons in San Diego uh, who was providing assistance and support to the three hijackers uh, who lived there. Now this, uh, the fact that we didn't come to closure on Bandar is not unusual. There were a number of trails in the 28 pages where the clock ran out. We had to get our report submitted by the end of December of 2002 because that was the end of the session of Congress which had given authorization for the joint inquiry in the first instance. Uh, what we did is we communicated with the FBI, with the CIA, and with the Citizens 9-11 Commission which had just been uh, formed and would start its work uh, early in 2003 uh, that here are a set of sus suspicious circumstances. Here's what we've developed about them. We urge you to pursue those. So one of the things that we, we the, those of us who continue to be interested uh, in this uh, matter are doing uh, is uh, asking the CIA, the FBI, and the National Archives, which currently has possession of all the documentation from the Citizens 9-11 Commission to go over these trails, including the Bandar Trail, to find out what else has been found out uh, in the 13 years that the 28 pages were being held uh, in seclusion. Uh, where is the state of the investigation uh, of that uh, today? We don't know the answer to that question because we haven't received a response from uh, the FBI, the CIA, or the well, materials. In, in the actual, tw in the 28 pages, while there, it, you have the information of the link between Zubaida's uh, phone book and numbers in the United States, in the 28 pages, it, it states on page 419, uh, the FBI noted that Apskol has an unlisted phone number. Now, this is a company that helped manage the uh, Bandar residence, if I understand it correctly. But then it says, a November 12, 2002 FBI response to the joint inquiry, which is the inquiry you chaired, states that, quote, CI traces have revealed no direct links between numbers found in Zubaida's phone book and numbers in the United States. Well, that's clearly not, not the case. Well, and that's, uh, I, I'm sad to have to say this about a venerated uh, U.S. Uh, uh, institution like the FBI, but that was just one of instances in which the FBI said that they had not found anything in their investigation uh, and assumed that that was the end of it. Uh, Another example, which is one of those things that we learned about after the 28 pages were written, uh, is that there were three of the hijackers, including Mohammed Atta, the leader of the 19, who did their flight training in Venice, Florida, a community 
near Sarasota, and that while they were taking their flight lessons, they uh, had connections with a prominent Saudi family, a three-generational family of grandfather who had been uh, close to the royal family, his daughter and son-in-law, and then uh, their grandchildren. Uh, the FBI stated uh, after uh, having uh, recognized that there was such a relationship that they found that there were no connections uh, between the 19, be between the three hijackers and this Saudi family. Subsequently, uh, in the files of the FBI, a report written by the FBI agent in charge of the investigation in Sarasota, he stated there were many connections between the hijackers and the family. Uh, again, uh, we're now, uh, through a Freedom of Information Act uh, uh, request, uh, attempting to find out what were those many uh, connections and how far did the FBI investigation go in trying to establish what the significance of those connections right. were. Right. Bob, uh, I'm going to read a, a, another section from the uh, 28 pages. L let me ask you, w w when I see something redacted, uh, does that mean you can't say what was redacted? Uh, yes, and there were about 11% of the words in the 28 uh, pages which were redacted. And what is it that stops you from being able to say? What, 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 it, what are you bound by? Well, I'm bound by an oath of confidentiality which I took when I became a member of the Senate Intelligence Committee. Uh, and having it redacted is the same as having it uh, suppressed. Right. Uh, the reason that it was redacted is somebody thought that there was a reason which could have been national security, it could have been protecting sources and methods. Uh, you know, there are other categories of reasons that can be the basis of withholding information. Right. Okay, I'll read, the, I'll read this paragraph to you. This is uh, again on page 419 of the 28 pages. Um, according to an FBI agent in Phoenix, the FBI suspects Mohammed El Kudain, I'm not sure I'm pronouncing that correctly, of being redacted. I don't know, does that mean a Saudi intelligence officer? Does it mean something else? Uh, there's a, the, the logic of the sentence suggests it might be that. Al-Qaeddin was involved in a 1999 incident aboard an American West flight, which FBI Phoenix office now suspects may have been a, quote, dry run to test airline security. During the flight, Al-Qaeddin and his associates asked the flight attendants a variety of suspicious questions. Al-Qaeddin then attempted to enter the cockpit on two occasions. Al-Qaeddin and his associate were flying to Washington, D.C. to attend a party at the Saudi embassy and both claimed that their tickets were paid for by the Saudi embassy. During the course of its investigation, the FBI has discovered both Al-Qaeddin and other individuals involved in this incident had connections to terrorism. Um, what, what happened to that line of inquiry? Uh, you have you've carried it up to the end point of what uh, the joint inquiry was able to find. And again, uh, this, in, this trail was turned over to the 9-11 Commission, FBI, and the CIA, probably primarily the FBI, uh, to take to ground, what, to get all of the 
questions that those stated facts that you just read uh, indicate that need to be answered. Uh, and we are uh, pursuing uh, those follow-ups to the trails that started in the 28 uh, pages, of which this is one of a dozen or more. When you, when you say we are following up, who's, who's the we? The we is the same group that's been pushing this so hard, and it includes the families of uh, the victims of 9-11, the families who for over a decade have been suing Saudi Arabia and various entities of the kingdom, uh, alleging that uh, they were essentially co-conspirators uh, in 9-11 and should be held uh, to account. They also uh, are investigative uh, journalists, uh, First Amendment lawyers uh, who have had uh, an, a long-time interest in this case. Okay, I'm going to read another section from 28 pages. Uh, this is on page 420. Prior to September 11th, the FBI apparently did not focus investigative, redacted, 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 Saudi nationals in the United States due to Saudi Arabia's status as an American ally. Redacted, redacted, sentence redacted, more redacted, more redacted. A representative of the FBI's redacted testified in closed hearings that prior to September 11th, the FBI received, quote, no reporting from any member of the intelligence community, end quote, that there is a redacted presence in the United States. What is that? Well, that sounds like it is one of the, the, the fundamental themes of 9-11, which was the failure of U.S. intelligence agencies to share uh, information, in this case, probably information between the CIA and the FBI. We know that happened uh, at the very, what I call, Chapter 1 of 9-11, which is a meeting that was held in Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia, in January of 2000, uh, at which uh, the attendees were close operatives of bin Laden, including the first uh, two to enter the United States to a man named Al-Mitar and another Al-Hazmi. Uh, and the, uh, the CIA uh, had, been, uh, had, had been clumsy in not getting a listening device in the room where that meeting was going to take place. And they knew the, where that room was because they had been monitoring the telephone and other uh, communications between and among the hijackers that would be in attendance. Uh, but they did manage to get a large number of pictures of the attendees at that meeting, including uh, Hosmi and Mitar. Uh, but they didn't share any of that information with, for instance, the FBI or with the Immigration Service. So two weeks after the summit of terrorists, as it's been called, uh, concluded, uh, Mitar and Hosmi uh, walked through the Los Angeles airport undetected because the people uh, who were handling the passport control had no reason to suspect that they were people of interest. Okay, t tell me about, uh, on page 422, there's a whole section on two men uh, one's name is Omar al-Bayoumi, and the other is Osama Bassan. Um, what was their connection to the uh, terrorist plot? 
And what was their connection to the Saudi government? And I'm not going to read it all. There's paragraph after paragraph in the 28 pages uh, linking uh, certainly uh, al-Bayouni to the Saudi government. Uh, in fact, one paragraph on page 423 says, al-Bayouni also had frequent contact with Saudi establishments in the United States. In review of telephone toll records, the FBI, FBI learned that al-Bayouni called the Saudi government establishment in the United States almost 100 times between January and May of 2000. According to the FBI, al-Bayouni was in contact with at least three individuals in the Saudi embassy in Washington, D.C., two individuals at the Saudi Arabian Cultural Mission in Washington, D.C., three individuals at the Saudi consulate in Los Angeles. I mean, it goes on and on, the, the number of contacts with the Saudi government. Uh, to, tell us a little bit who these two men were and to what extent is Bandar implicated in this? Well, uh, let me, uh, this requires some background. Uh, at the end of the Persian Gulf War in 1991, uh, the kingdom was was dissembling. They were they realized how closely how close they came to be invaded by Saddam Hussein's troops who were in Kuwait. Uh, they recognized how weak their military was, uh, and they also became very concerned that they were going to face a an internal. Uh, issue similar to what happened in Iran in 1979, where largely a group of college-age Iranians overthrew the Shah and installed the government that is there today. Uh, in order to try to protect themselves against uh, such a youth-led revolution, the Saudi government set up a series of monitors around the world whose job it was to watch over young college age, particularly Saudis, uh, wherever they were, to determine if they were plotting against the kingdom. One of those monitors uh, was named Bayoumi, and uh, he had been a bookkeeper for the uh, Civil Aviation Agency in Saudi Arabia, was selected to be trained uh, to be a monitor and then was assigned in the late 1990s uh, to the Southern California area. Uh, he, uh, when, I, now, I'm now going to move to speculation. Uh, my speculation is that bin Laden uh, was aware of this series of monitors. Uh, he also became aware as he developed his plot of attacking the United States uh, by expropriating commercial airliners, how difficult that was going to be, and recognized that the people that he was selecting to lead this attack inside the United States, uh, who didn't in the main speak English, they'd never been to the United States before, they weren't highly educated, uh, were not going to be able to carry out the plot without some assistance. And so he put the two together and said, I'm going to I am going to create a situation where the Saudi kingdom will make this system of monitors that they have available to me uh, so that uh, wherever the hijackers end up being placed in the United States, they will have someone who can be uh, their overseer while they are there. Uh, and since the first uh, two hijackers to enter the United States came to Los Angeles 
and that was part of Bayumi's territory. Uh, he became the first mentor of the of these uh, hijackers. I want to get back to why the Saudis may have done this, and I also want to get to what the U.S. government's role in all this was. But just one more thing from the 28 pages, because we don't. I know you have to leave, because and I hope we can get back to this in, in another session. But on page 428, uh, Bassan, who is described in this way, the FBI also developed additional information clearly indicating that Bassan is an extremist and supporter of Osama bin Laden. Now, Bassan is connected with the people where? Well, Bassan was essentially uh, Bayoumi's uh, second-in-command and was in the course of being trained uh, to to be become Bayoumi's uh, successor. Uh, Bassan had been in the United States uh, for a longer period than Bayoumi. In fact, there's a lot of smoke around uh, his role with the so-called blind uh, sheikh who had tried to blow up the World Trade Center back, I think, in 1993. Uh, Boston had a number of uh, suspicious connections uh, to that uh, incident. Uh, Bassan also uh, had uh, a wife who, and I think, had legitimately had some serious medical issues. The uh, embassy of the Saudi Kingdom in Washington has a fund that's under the direction of the wife of the ambassador. Uh, which is available for indigent Saudis living in the United States who have some urgent uh, situation. And in this case, Basnan went to this to the embassy pleading on behalf of his wife for funds to pay for her uh, medical attention. Uh, and they, she was given such assistance. Now, now, according to the 28 pages, the FBI... It's, a, it's a, at least it is certainly, one would think, known to Prince Bandar and the Saudis that Bassan is a supporter of bin Laden, according to the FBI. Uh, I read, according to the, an FBI asset, Bassan spoke of bin Laden as if he were God, um, and so on. Can I just finish yeah. the train that I was on? So now we have Bastan, who by this time has moved to San Diego, and he's assisting Bayoumi, and he's also getting a regular, uh, or his wife has gotten a check for first her surgeries and then second for the rehabilitation. And I think the checks were about $2,000 a month. Uh, in uh, the early part of 2000, co coincident with the time that the two hijackers came to San Diego, Mrs. Bastan's check, instead of going to her, started to go to Mrs. Bayoumi, the wife of the person who's mentoring the two hijackers, uh, and raising the suspicion that that was a money laundering uh, operation where the money went from the Saudi embassy in Washington, a fund under the control of the wife of the ambassador, uh, to Bayoumi's wife, bypassing Bosnan's wife, 
and then from Bayumi's wife to the hijackers to be part of the flow of money that right. uh, was supporting them, including their flight lessons while and, they were... And on page 427, it says, on at least one occasion, Bassan received a check, a check directly from Prince Bandar's account. Yes. So and a direct connection between Bandar and Bassan. Yeah. Uh, and that's, uh, that's uh, again, I hope that when we get a response from the FBI, CIA, uh, or the, uh, the archives, we'll find that there were investiga investigations done by one or more of those three groups, uh, which answered the questions of, was Basnan's wife a conduit of money from the Saudi embassy in Washington to the two hijackers? And why did the, the uh, ambassador himself make a fairly sizable uh, uh, fund available uh, to Mr. Basnan? I want to jump to something else, uh, which we discussed in the previous interview, and that has to do with the, the role of the American government in this, particularly the Bush-Cheney administration. Um, I'm, going to, I'm going to play for you a little exchange we had in the previous interview. If you are right that, that Bandar knew this was going on, then he's sitting meeting with his friend, President Bush, regularly in the days leading up to 9-11, and, and either not saying anything, or, or somehow does. Uh, I mean, I know you know there's, there's a lot of theory and, and, and I think a lot of evidence that it would at least uh, require an inquiry that there's a deliberate attempt not to know. It's not just lack of, it's not just incompetency. And, and, and I mean, it, to believe that it's just incompetency, then you have to think it's, it's like the uh, Keystone Cop of intelligence agencies. They're just tripping all over each other. Yeah, and, but but and, that seems hard to believe. Well, and also the fact that it was so pervasive that, that virtually all of the agencies of the federal government uh, were moving in the same direction from a customs agent at an airport in Orlando who was chastised when he uh, denied entry in the United States to a Saudi uh, to uh, the President of the United States authorizing large numbers of Saudis uh, to leave the country, possibly denying us forever uh, important insights and information on what happened. Uh, the, you don't have everybody uh, moving in the same direction without there being uh, a head coach somewhere uh, who is giving them instructions as to where he wants them to move. So that includes before and after the events? Uh, primarily before the event. After the event, it shifts from being uh, an, an action that supports uh, the activities of the uh, Saudis uh, to actions that cover up uh, the results of that permission given to the Saudis to act. So could you explain, particularly this last, this last two couple of sentences, primarily before the event, 
after the event, it shifts from being an action that supports the activities to the Saudis to actions that cover up the results of that permission given to the Saudis to act. So can you elaborate on that? Well, and, and I'll get to the why uh, question. Why would the U.S. government have done this? And let me say, uh, I no longer use the words cover-up to describe what's going on. Uh, I find the more accurately the words aggressive deception. Uh, the federal government has attempted to rewrite the narrative of 9-11 in order to exclude the role of the Saudis from that uh, horrific story. Uh, why did they do it? Uh, I think there are a number of reasons. Uh, some of them relate to the long-time special personal relationship between the Bush family uh, and the uh, Saudi kingdom. It goes back three generations uh, to uh, Herbert Walker Bush's father, uh, Prescott Bush, uh, from a senator from Connecticut. Uh, I think it also involves the long relationship that uh, started in World War II when the United States essentially committed to provide security to the Saudis. The Saudis committed to provide a reliable source of petroleum to the United States and its uh, allies. But I think there's another issue here, and that is, if you'll recall, uh, at the World Trade Center uh, after 9-11, the president uh, with a bullhorn uh, said words to the effect that we are going to follow anyone uh, who was found to have been in any way connected to this uh, uh, murder uh, and that we will follow them to the ends of the earth. Uh, pretty strong uh, words. Uh, and certainly shortly thereafter, much of the information that you have uh, outlined uh, became available to the president. Problem, the president wanted to go to war with Iraq uh, and he is, he is painted uh, at, the at the site of the crime uh, a, a path that looks like it's going directly uh, to the Saudis, uh, but that's not the destination he wants. So what do you do? You have to, to suppress all the information that would uh, cause people to think that the Saudis were the people that he was talking about uh, with the bullhorn at the World Trade Center and get the country prepared and willing to go to war against a country which was subsequently found out to have not virtually, if not totally, nothing to do. Right, but Bob, I know you have to leave, uh, but so let me just, I just want to focus on this line. You don't have everybody moving in the same direction without there being a head coach somewhere who's giving them instructions as to where he wants them to move. And that's in reference to me talking about the various examples of American intelligence agencies that in fact did generate intelligence that could have prevented 9-11 if it had been followed up. And I had asked you if there was a deliberate culture created to the American intelligence agencies of not wanting to know, which, which in itself could prohibit the sharing of information that people talk about. Uh, you mentioned to me in this interview that in the uh, famous memo, Bin Laden plans to attack the United States, that in, in the subsequent memo that usually goes out to heads of agencies, that that was omitted, which one would think 
would have gone to head of agencies in order to take precautions. Uh, you mentioned the, uh, immig the immigration, uh, the, the border official who's chastised. This was because there had been a, a, a guideline handed down from the White House, if I understand it correctly, not to stop Saudis from coming into the country, even if under normal protocol, you would have stopped them. So, so uh, who's the coach? Well, I think the coach is the President of the United States. Uh, uh, he's the only one who could have uh, commanded uh, agencies from the Department of uh, State to the Treasury Department to the intelligence uh, community to the FBI and other law enforcement agencies to all act in the same uh, manner because they are all ultimately responsible to the president. So, I mean, that does suggest that given the president's relationship with Bandar and lots of evidence that Bandar is in the thick of the 9-11 of the conspiracy, that, that it's very likely that this, what, I don't know how else to say this, the President Bush and I assume Dick Cheney, who was up to his eyeballs in this as well, um, create a culture of not wanting to know amongst the intelligence agencies. And it starts with the demotion of Richard Clark, who was the anti-terrorism czar. And apparently, even after George Tenet briefs President Bush, in his first briefing, according to Tenet, he, sell, he tells Bush the number one national security threat to the United States is al-Qaeda and bin Laden. And then he demotes the guy who's supposed to be in charge of the fight against al-Qaeda and bin Laden, Richard Clark. And there's it, 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 is there not, a, at the very least, a very strong suggestion that the back door was open for these kinds of, for this type of attack? I don't know if there's any evidence the White House knew what was coming, but Bandar certainly had a pretty good idea what was coming. Again, uh, these are exactly the questions to which I hope that the information that uh, was gathered uh, subsequent to the writing of the 28 pages, in response in many cases to the trails that were first uh, outlined. Of course, we've lost 13 years. We should have been doing this not in 2016, but in 2002, 3, 4, 5, 6, etc. Uh, and, but we are where we are. So, and many people are asking. You know, does it make any difference now? Fifteen years later, why don't we uh, move on? I, an, a prominent official in the FBI told me uh, in 2011 to get a life, to stop uh, pestering them about this. Uh, I think it makes a lot of difference. Justice to the families that uh, have suffered so grievously, our national security, the Saudis thinking that they have a status of immunity uh, from the United States have continued to fund terrorist organizations and continued to train the next generation of terrorists in a Wahhabist mosque and schools, uh, feeling that there's going to be no uh, negative reaction from the United States. Can, can I, and I think this has had an enormously detrimental impact on the American people. The presidential election is now uh, well underway, uh, and we're every day seeing the depth of uh, public uh, cynicism and a sense of, of disconnection of, with, between the government and the people. And I believe that acts of secrecy, such as 
we've been talking about are a significant part of that public attitude. Can, can I suggest an alternative theory, if all this is true, why it might, what might have motivated it, is that a, a real convergence of interest between the Saudi regime and the uh, President Bush and Dick Cheney and, and the neocons around them. Uh, we know there's a document that comes out called uh, Project for a New American Century, which essentially calls for regime change, first of all in Iraq, then in Syria, and the ultimate prize being Iran. And we know the Saudis are extremely motivated to try to overthrow the regime in, in Iran. They, they hate the Iranians, and it frames itself as, as hating Shia. And it's certainly a convergence of interest between the Saudi government and Al-Qaeda that hate Shia uh, probably more than they hate America. Um, and of course, Bush Cheney's uh, stated objective was regime change in Iran. They, they wanted, in fact, there was a time where the, they hoped to go to war with Iran, and perhaps only generals from the Pentagon stopped it from happening. That, that, that there was a real convergence of interest to create the conditions of what was called in that project for a new American century, the need for a new Pearl Harbor, um, that, that they're conniving in this. I, there's no other way to say it. A lot of, uh, a, a lot of intriguing questions. I hope that uh, uh, we will have some answers. Uh, I, uh, I only hope we don't have to wait another decade and a half to get at the business of providing those answers. Thanks very much for joining us, Senator. Thank you very much. I appreciate uh, this opportunity and uh, the very incisive questions that you uh, ask. Hope we'll have a chance to do it again as we learn more about this tragedy. Great. Thank you very much. And thank you for joining us on The Real News Network.